there will be spoilers, 100 films, 100 podcasts. I'm Matt Bazell. And I'm Buddy Boy, Ethan Knight. And before we dive headlong into this episode, which is number 80 on AFI's top 100 list, 1960's The Apartment. Before we do that, I do want to take a moment to apologize and simultaneously thank everyone for being patient, for waiting for this episode to come out. This should come out sometime Wednesday evening or night, depending on your time zone. We had mentioned that there'd be a delay because we were out and about. Ethan and I were either receiving family or traveling or working on things. We have kind of crazy schedules. Or both, all three. Or all, all <laughs> of the above, right? But now we're going to be... It's that time of the year. It's that most wonderful time of the year, academic summer, in which teachers have to scramble to get all their other obligations finished before they can start teaching summer classes. Right, cram as much tiny vacation time into a short the short amount of time we have before we have to start actually working again yeah but since we are back to that more regular schedule where you don't plan on being off anymore but i just wanted to you know give you the the rundown of what went on while we were gone and why that was the case but in any case let's get back to the episode yes thanks for bearing with us this movie just over two hours long it did not feel like two hours long i will tell you that in a good way okay i was gonna say do you <laughs> think it felt longer or shorter so (laughs) i'll just go ahead and put my cards on the table i kind of like this film oh my god i was beyond pleasantly surprised with this film i tend to really enjoy black and white films and so i i really really enjoyed this one i never heard of it before me neither and almost instantly was thinking wow this is way different than i thought it would be So without me continuing to speak cryptically about it, Ethan, why don't you give us a plot synopsis? I will, and this is a longer one. This is the longest typed one that I've done so far, so it's a little longer than usual. Mainly because I really enjoyed this movie, so maybe I had a little more to say. The Apartment is the story of C.C. Baxter, also known as Buddy Boy, who is a pencil pusher at an insurance company in a high-rise in New York. As he explains at the beginning, he loves his job, he works hard, and he has a nice little place nearby, but with one problem. He doesn't get to use his apartment enough. This is because he has been talked into letting his superiors use the office to conduct a variety of parties and extramarital affairs, with the implication that they will help promote him in return. They take more and more liberties with the place, forcing him to vacate it at all hours of the night in order to bring women back, and leading to him catching a terrible cold because he's outside at four in the morning. Baxter's neighbors and landlady assume that all the women are coming to see him, and that he's a hard-partying ladies' man, but he's not, of course. Meanwhile, the otherwise respectable Baxter has been flirting with a pretty elevator operator, Fran Kubelik. The names are strange in this film, who his managers desire but are unable to woo. Baxter does get called in to the personnel director's office and is offered his promotion under the condition that he allow the director, Mr. Sheldrake, to use the apartment as well. This first time he's given tickets to the music man to occupy his time. Baxter reluctantly accepts and asks Kubelik to join him. She promises to meet him at the box office after her date that evening, which turns out to be with, you guessed it, Mr. Sheldrake. Sheldrake and Kubelik had had an affair, but when he refused to leave his wife, she had lost interest, but he tries to convince her to come back to him, telling her that he was in talks that morning with his lawyer to get a divorce. Kubelik relents and stands up Baxter. 
Weeks later, at the Christmas party, Kubelik learns from Sheldrake's secretary that she is one in a long string of affairs and that Sheldrake has no intention of leaving his wife. Baxter spends some time with her, but discovers that she's the girl Sheldrake has been bringing back to his apartment. He's bereft and spends Christmas at a bar drinking heavily. He meets a woman who woos him, and they head back to his apartment. However... Kubelik and Sheldrake have been there, and after a confrontation about Sheldrake's intentions, Kubelik allows him to leave, but she stays. He gives her $100 in lieu of a Christmas gift, and she takes a bottle of Baxter's sleeping pills in order to commit suicide. Baxter and his date return, and he finds Kubelik unresponsive in his bed. He wakes up his neighbor, who's a doctor, and they luckily are able to revive her, though Baxter takes the heat rather than explain the complicated situation. Afterwards, his neighbor lectures him about his habits and suggests that he be a mensch, which means a human being. The next morning, Kubelik awakes, and Baxter explains what happened. He and Dr. Dreyfus's wife nurse her back to health, and Baxter alerts Sheldrake to the situation. This is Christmas Day. Kubelik is still hung up on Sheldrake, but has a good time playing cards and having dinner with Baxter. When she doesn't show up to work, however, her brother-in-law shows up at the office looking for her. Baxter's old superiors, angry that he's not been allowing them to use the apartment, rat him out as one of them had arrived earlier to use the apartment but was turned down by Baxter because of the situation with Kubelik. Her brother-in-law shows up at Baxter's, very angry, and hits him. He takes Kublik home with him, spaghetti dinner uneaten, and gin rummy game unfinished. Sheldrake, angry at his secretary, fires her, and she reveals to his wife the situation. Baxter, the next day, plans to tell Sheldrake that he will be dating Kublik, so Sheldrake need not worry about cheating on his wife any longer. However, when he arrives at Sheldrake's office, Sheldrake essentially reads him his speech back to him, having been thrown out by his wife. He also offers Baxter a huge promotion to assistant director. Baxter reluctantly takes it, realizing that Kublik is still hung up on Sheldrake. When New Year's Eve rolls around, Sheldrake again asks to use the apartment. Baxter initially refuses, but when he's told it is the key to the apartment or his job, he apparently relents. However, he's given Sheldrake the key to the administrative lunchroom and bathroom, not to his apartment. He quits and goes home to pack up and move. Later that night, Kubelik realizes what has happened and that she truly does love Baxter and leaves Sheldrake at midnight. She runs to Baxter, and as he professes his love, she returns to their unfinished card game, implying that she feels the same. The end. Well, you missed one of the parallel moments in which she thinks he's committing suicide because when he comes home, the landlady says, I smell gas. And he thinks she's trying to asphyxiate herself in his apartment. So he runs up and she's just turned the gas on, not the, not the stove. And so she runs up and thinks he has killed himself with the gun that he's pulled out while he's packing. And instead, he's just popping the bottle of champagne, one of his old the bosses left over. So they have a lot of little perfect parallel moments like that that yes. I love a lot. Like when he hands over the executive washroom key, that's a moment that you know recalls an earlier scene in which... He has to, where he gets the cold in the first place. He's stuck outside till 4 a.m. because his superior puts the washroom key under the mat instead of his apartment key. So it's yes. a small little inconvenience, but it's actually a huge deal to Baxter who gets sick because he's on a park bench till 4 a.m. like a bum. And so little moments like that I really enjoy because it shows nice tight writing. And I think he did a nice tight synopsis of the film 
despite it being two hours long, I think you've probably well covered yeah. all the major strands that are at play there, right? So a lot of layering that goes on. Yeah, there are a lot. You like you said, there's lots of little layers. There's lots of these neat little parallel moments, and it's and really visually, it recalls a lot of these things, which is again uh, a reflection of the craft, right? I mean, this this film won a couple of Academy Awards, and I mean, you know, it's on this list. So <laughs> yeah, and speaking about the list, I think it's probably. If not my favorite, one of my favorite movies on this on this list so far. Yeah, I would like to award this film the the best in show so far. <laughs> well, and and the most surprisingly good. Right. Because I had I went into this film knowing nothing. I didn't read anything about it. I just pulled it up and popped it in, and I was I immediately knew I was I was in for a treat. I was enjoying it from the first moment all the way to the end. So yeah, I really do like this film. And in order for us to dig into it more, I think I want to give you our pivotal scene now, and then we can talk Ooh. about some themes. So the scene I chose, and I could have picked so, so many of these, so I wanted to pick something that really kind of pulled together several, if not all, of the strands that this film juggles, and expertly, I think. So the, the scene I picked is where Baxter is talking to Fran about his own attempted suicide, because yes. she is ruminating on takers and those that get took yes and so why don't we just listen to this first and we'll come back very curious i could only find three and a half pair well things are a little disorganized around here i'd say what's a tennis racket doing in the kitchen tennis racket oh i remember i was cooking myself an italian dinner i used it to strain the spaghetti why not as a matter of fact i'm a pretty good cook only i'm a lousy housekeeper Yes, you are. When I was straightening up the couch, you know what I found? Huh. Six hairpins, a lipstick, a pair of false eyelashes, and a swizzle stick from the store club. It's just that I'm the kind of guy who can't say no. <laughs> I don't mean to girls. I mean, uh... I mean to someone like Mr. Sheldrake. I guess so. I know so. He's a taker. What? Some people take, some people get took. And they know they're getting took, and there's nothing they can do about it. I wouldn't say that. What would you like to have for dinner, huh? Hey, uh, onion soup and a canned asparagus. I really should be getting home. My family will be flipping by now. Oh, you can't leave yet. The doctor said it takes 48 hours to get that stuff out of your system. I wonder how long it takes to get someone you're stuck on out of your system. If only they'd invent some kind of pump for that. I know. How you feel, Miss Kubelik? You think it's the end of the world, but it's not. I went through exactly the same thing myself. You did? Yeah, well, maybe not exactly the same. I tried to do it with a gun. Over a girl? Worse than that, it was the wife of my best friend. And I was mad about her. But I knew it was hopeless, and I decided to end it all. I went to a pawn shop, and I bought a 45 automatic, and I drove up to Eaton Park. You know Cincinnati? No, I don't. Well, anyway, I parked the car and I loaded that gun. You, you read in the papers all the time that people shoot themselves. Believe me, it's not that easy. I mean, how do you do it? Here? 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 You know where I finally shot myself? Where? Here. In the knee? While I was sitting there trying to make up my mind, a cop stuck his head in the car because I was illegally parked and I tried to hide the gun under the seat and it went off. Ow. <laughs> Well, it was a year before I could bend the knee. <laughs> but I got over the girl in three weeks. Still lives in Cincinnati. Has four kids and gained 20 pounds. Sends me a fruitcake every Christmas. 
Okay, so he talks about how he himself got hung up on his best friend's wife and thinks about killing himself, couldn't figure it out, and then a cop shows up and he kind of turns to this comic moment where he shoots himself in the leg, right? <laughs> Haha, so funny. 45 caliber to the knee. You probably would blast your entire like kneecap off. Yeah, uh, well, that, that, that also reminds me like we were texting when I was finishing the movie, when she's passed out and they make her puke up the sleeping pills and the doctor's just slapping the shit out of her for like, yeah, he's really... I don't know, like three or four minutes. Like, again, this movie does take a few liberties with reality because I'm pretty sure if you take a stomach full of sleeping pills, just, you know, puking and being slapped by a doctor in an apartment is probably not going to work. Well, that's it. what's so interesting about this. It really doesn't shy away from a lot, this film. No, you're right. He's I mean, smacking the crap it, out of her, and Baxter is over there agonizing. And you're like, this is kind of a rough moment, you know? Yeah. And this film also, I mean, this is 1960, and they make no... I don't know that they ever say the word affair. They say affair, but they don't ever say, like, adultery or something, you know? Right. I mean, literally, though, these men are going back to Baxter's house to, to like, fuck these women. It's they're not going back to like hang out and drink. They're going there to use the apartment, and the film doesn't really pretend like that's not what they're doing. I mean, they don't say, "I'm bringing her up to banger," but it, it, they might as well be right. And the fact that they're going to this apartment on the sly instead of having their own place says that they're all definitely married or they're all in relationships. And so it's this horrible sleazy thing that Baxter, who really is a more pure character in his intentions and what he's done and how he conducts himself. He's the reason he's in this mess is because he's too nice. And so we're seeing like a, this horrible, I don't want to say degeneration, but outwardly his appearance is degenerating in the eyes of his universally Jewish neighbors. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that we have these upstanding Jewish, Jewish neighbors, this Jewish doctor, a Jewish landlady. And he's, he's told to be a mensch, right? Be a human being. And so if I could just fall into my thesis, all, all fancy yes, like, out. what we're seeing here is that something is at odds with being a human being and the position Baxter is in. So we have this consumerist corporate America, and that's built to turn people into takers, right? Reduction of the human being, no longer a mensch, now you're a taker. Those that are incapable of taking or are too decent to do so, you know, read these people as givers, right, are quickly run down. There's also the danger that those that get took become degenerated, deteriorating to fit the mold of the quote-unquote elite, right? So Jeff Sheldrake, the personnel director, he's a taker, as Fran points out. And she's someone that gets took. Baxter is someone that gets took repeatedly by all his superiors. And, and all outward signs point to him being degenerated into that, right? He's, to his neighbors, a womanizer, a party animal, a heavy, heavy drinker. And now he's got this junior executive position and you think, wow, he's really falling apart. Because, And we actually see a small bit of this as a slight thing, but I think it's very important with the, you know, X-wise, you know, personnel-wise, per people-wise. Mm -hmm. It's He's in that sort of consumerist or corporate legalese and he's falling into those traps. They sort of joke about it at the Christmas party, but it's like, oh, that's a dangerous place to be. Like, I was mm -hmm. worried for a while. I was like, is Baxter becoming the bad guy? But I think this is all pretty expertly done and, and builds these fears up uh, pretty well. Yeah, and the film, in the end, he's overall, he's a pretty, I mean, he's a good character. I mean, he's the protagonist, right? He's a good character. But a lot of the tension, I think, in this film is how far is he willing to go to enable these people and to, you know, hold his job and, like, 
it, you don't feel good about him letting these people take advantage of him, and he doesn't feel good about it. Right. But he tries to rationalize it at one point to Francis. Look, I wasn't getting took. I was taking, right? I got this position from him. Right. But it rings hollow, right? We know that he didn't do it to get this advancement. We know he wants advancement through his hard work, which he apparently does very well, right? He's he's very, very efficient. And on top of that, he has this apartment. And that's actually getting him noticed because what we're finding out is that corporate America doesn't want the hard worker. It wants someone that will bend to the taker's will. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of the themes that I I laid out here. And it's funny that you said, I don't want to say degeneracy, but that's the first thing I wrote down was corporate degeneracy. How it is it in no way values his hard work. It only val. I mean, he could have done, he could have been the shittiest employee on the planet as long as he's given these people his key, then he's, he's going to advance no matter what. In fact, at the very end of the film, on New Year's Eve, he comes out with all this work and Sheldrake is like, you work too hard. It's New Year's Eve. Yeah, it's like, you need to calm down. Yeah, so there's absolutely something here about how, like, it's almost an expose piece on corporate America. And in that way, it's a lot like, I mean, you can't, I, at least I couldn't watch this film without thinking about Mad Men. The parallels are, oh, sure, are sure. very clear. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to mention, because you brought it up, you talked about New Year's Eve and Christmas. What are those, if not the biggest consumerist holidays in America? Right. So it's no accident that this film takes place and spans those two major holidays for like frivolity, consumerism, alcoholism, right. and promiscuity. And both of them masquerade in a lot of ways as holidays that are about family and about other people. I mean, like wholesome Christmas, values right? or, or, or virtues, yeah. right? Right, exactly. I mean, these are, you know, this is why you've got people saying, it's the war against Christmas, when, I mean, it's already turned into this terrible consumer capitalist awfulness where you have to buy things and you have to, you know, to the point of, uh, you know, trampling people in stores. Right. And I think that's just such great texture for the film because it's got that. Yeah. It's also, they work at a life insurance company, which is also seen mm-hmm. as something like a sleazy thing in America, especially around that time. We maybe don't have that sort of prejudice so much anymore that trope of prejudice but it's there very much there in the film and it just adds such beautiful texture to this the situation where you the first I, 30 minutes I of this would, film i was like oh man i'm really invested in baxter i want him to win so bad because i hate everything that he's opposed right now right and although i mean i would kind of disagree and say that you still see the sleazy the trope of the sleazy uh insurance salesman mainly because they I, they deal in death right like they do well well they deal in monetizing death i think well right and and dehumanizing people i mean he starts it out with the numbers this many people in the building and this many people in new york and if you lay them out i mean it's so this is again that buys into that corporate degeneracy which pulls you away from human decency and human beings you're turning human beings into numbers you know that's a really good point i hadn't thought about that but that entire like five minute opening monologue is about the devaluing of people, turning them into numbers, turning them to objects, dehumanization, you know, writ large. Yeah, and that's, you know, I think that fits really well with the rest of this film. And maybe this is because I am very suspicious of capitalism. Maybe that's why I like this film, because I think it is it itself is deeply suspicious of the dehumanization that capitalism does, right? The women aren't really women, they're distractions for these men right right yeah absolutely they don't care about their wives they don't care about the women that they're taking back to his apartment they don't care about baxter you know everything it's all about means to an end right like if you use these people then you're using i mean they're using people as a means to an end and then and even insurance right is, an, is another way to sort of monetize 
human life as a means to make money. Because mm-hmm. let me tell you, the insurance companies aren't out to like hope you have a great life. They're out to like make you afraid of dying and and make money off you in the interim. Yeah. So this film does a really good job without telegraphing these things too heavily but it's all laid out there and, and it's laid out in this romance right which is really accessible uh because you do want baxter to win you want kubelik is at heart a good a, a good character she just has you know she's it, the implication too is that she's sort of like kind of comes to the big city and she just keeps getting screwed over by she's taken advantage of right she got took so something you said earlier reminded me of some more of this texture like you said it doesn't really paint with two fine strokes to say like are you sure you're getting this it just kind of gives you these interesting little scenes so when baxter calls sheldrake christmas morning and he's got his sons and they're playing right. with these like amazing toys so you know really expensive consumer stuff again and they're in this huge house this big tree and he's wearing his expensive robe that still has a tag on it and everything like that and he talks about one of the sons saying well see if we put a fly in there and see if we can land it get it to land safely or put yeah. two flies in it and see if they propagate and his dad's like propagate he's like you know baby flies and he's like Oh, right. And that's such an interesting, complicated moment in which we're talking about sex, but we're also talking about the reduction of sex to adding more numbers. We're also talking about like triviality of these flies' lives. And then Sheldrake, you know, obviously doesn't view sex as propagation, right? Because he is in, he's a philanderer. So there's all these little interesting strands being tugged at in that scene. And, And the film never stops and says, well, let's catch you up. Do right. you, did you disentangle all these things? It just says, look, here's this beautiful little scene that you can you know, unpack on your own speed. It's just like, hey, great. Yeah, and this comes shortly after, right, the, the, where he gives her the money as, as a gift, right? And he says, I didn't have time. I can't, go, I can't just go shopping right. for you. People would know. You know what I mean? So he gives her $100. Well, he also says, like, well, I don't know what you like and things like that. Right. And so, she, you know, there's, the, there's that whole strain that comes up a couple of times where she's like, I'm worth 100 bucks. Like, she's like, that's, no, that's, you know, that's not cheap. I'm worth a lot to you, apparently. And I mean, again, 100 bucks in 1960 is a, a good amount of money. And she starts to take her clothes off, and he's like, what are you doing? And she's like, well, I, since you already paid for it. Like, right. this is her, like, completely submitting to the degeneracy of corporatized consumerist America, right? When you put sex or love, well, it's reduced to sex, obviously, here, in into the corporate structure, if what we're seeing, right, is that you are worth $100 for your services. And it becomes this really greasy, slimy, horrific thing. Right, which is just like insurance. I mean, when you come down to it, you think about what insurance does, you know, like life insurance or, or if you, you know, get hurt on the job or something, you can lose a hand and that's worth so much money and you can die and that's worth so much money. And, you know, it all comes down to like what... I, I think this film really plays with the idea of like how do we value things do we value things in terms of what we can get out of it and and money or do we value things because they're inherently good right or or you know like love do we can you put a price on love clearly the film tells us no the and when you try to put a price on love you reduce yourself to something that's not human right because then we have baxter give up the big job move out of the apartment it's reduced to nothing financially. He has no job, no prospects currently, but he has Fran, and that is what's enough. Right? Yeah. So, Ethan, that was a really succinct thesis you just gave there. I'm really, 
really happy that was your stated yeah thesis. definitely that's exactly what i was planning on doing <laughs> well then why don't we why don't we move on to our three questions then let us okay so the first question is do we care about this film uh yeah i mean i think so first of all this film only two films afterwards have won academy awards that were in black and white mm-hmm. schindler's list and and the artist the artist is 2011 schindler's list is 1993 and schindler's list is on our list that's correct yeah so I think that's at least notable. And yeah, I mean, this, it just, it, it, it speaks to something that is very clear right now. I mean, it, it's, this film is from 1960 and you could have made it uh, last week and it would, it hits almost all the right notes. Yeah, I agree. One thing I wanted to augment that with is that it was made in 1960, but it's representing the 1940s, right? The late 1940s. True. So the post-World War II boom where we do get to see consumer america really gets feet we're out of the depression we've won the war we're great let's throw money at it yeah and and that really hasn't gone away and so i think it presents that very well i absolutely care about this film like i said if it's not my most favorite it's like my number two uh on this list so far and i'll go ahead and say i had planned to watch part of this last night and then finish it this morning i ended up staying up late and watching the entire thing all the way through is that engaging I was very invested and I was very happy with the themes it presented and the ways in which the protagonists, you know, fought against those things. Yeah. All right. Well, let's ask the second question. What do we owe this film? Well, I mean, you, this could practically, I mean, this is like a season of Mad Men. Right. You pointed out Mad Men. I think that's a particularly apt comparison to make. I mean, that Mad Men definitely owes a lot to this. So that alone, I think, is a pretty significant thing. And because Mad Men was a huge cultural craze, is a huge cultural craze, and it basically is the same story just stretched out over a lot of seasons. Right. We also owe the idea of the the virtuous or at least decent office worker who is being ground down by the corporate structure that is then pushed into position to have to do something extraordinary or heroic or out of the ordinary to fight back against that structure, right? We've seen that it is as old as corporate America, right? Yeah, and and for what it's worth, I mean, this not only does it hit on that note, it hits on a lot of the big rom-com notes that we see, right? Like the the, the vir- again, the virtuous male character, the sort of troubled but virtuous female character who comes around in the end and like runs to realize, you know, that she's got him or that she really wants him, blah, blah, blah. They, you know, it hits a lot of those notes. And so I think again, that, that it's worth something because it's solidifying this stuff. She's also positioned a little bit like a manic pixie dream girl, right? She's uh, yeah. inaccessible to all these corporate authorities, but you know, she wears a little flower in her vest every day and she's got the, she's even got the pixie haircut, right? Yeah. And everyone wants her, but she's inaccessible, and no one really knows why. And it's it really comes down to this this history she's had with having to come to the city and, and be in this you know stranger in a strange land. But um, there's even that a little bit there, right? That she's going to change, she's going to alter his life in a, a significant way, which she does. Yeah, she does. So I, I agree. She's definitely uh, hitting those notes, which is interesting. And then our final question, Ethan: Does this film hold up? Uh, yes, hands down. Yes, it is beautifully shot. It uh, the dialogue is still funny. It this movie is a two-hour movie that doesn't feel like it. And trust me, dear listener, we have watched a lot of long-ass movies that felt long as as my entire life. <laughs> yes, like I'm bones by the end of some of these movies. Uh, and this film, I I was 
on the edge of my seat the whole thing. I loved it. It was great. It is worth watching, absolutely. And I don't think it would leave a modern audience in any way. The, I mean, the, the only thing you might have to get over in terms of a modern audience is maybe the black and white. But I think really good black and white films, it, that sort of fades into the distance and you don't really, it doesn't really matter. That's what I was going to say, actually, was that I love black and white films that are so good that you forget they're in black and white. Yeah, exactly. Like, and this is one of those films. She's definitely one of those films, absolutely. Because you end up the this it's the story itself is full of color, uh, in perhaps a metaphorical sense, and so it doesn't really matter that it's not in in color. Uh, and or the technicolor, and, right? And the black and white adds a little bit of quaintness to it, which I think the film sort of hams up just a, just enough that it that it's not over the top it's it's a good right like this film right. is it's got it's got some um charm because it's in black and white yeah it's got your 40s fast talking charm but it's not egregious and it doesn't make me want to like shoot myself and run out of the room yes i agree with all the things you said this film absolutely holds up it is so prescient to modern corporate america yeah and the ways in which more and more people are being subjugated by that sort of consumerist capitalist rule i mean like just see anyone christmas time and tell me that we're not all slaves to consumerism right yeah and one of my favorite scenes very early on in the film is he finally gets home from that long night at work and gets his tv dinner heats it up and sits on the couch and he's like i just want to watch some tv eat my dinner and go to bed who hasn't been there and they're like all right we're gonna show you this movie with all these famous actors in it but first a word from our sponsor and it's like again corporate consumer you know Mm -hmm. advertising and he's like but now without further ado here it is a message from our alternate advertiser it just gives up and goes to bed which is like this is so everyone's been there everyone understands that and that feeling is so real i think this absolutely holds up yeah very well and and i would even say too that from a feminist perspective the female characters aren't they don't feel like caricatures i mean certainly there are a few issues here and there but you know these aren't completely flat female characters right i would say the with the exception of the lacking a better term the floozies that the yeah that the businessmen the uppers take home but you know fran is a good character she's complicated she's got a lot of um depth to her yeah and she doesn't want to play by the rules that people have set for women same as to be said of the secretary of shell drake miss olsen right yeah when she's been wrong she kind of goes with it and is like listen i'm still going to try to get you know where i want to be in this world and then when he fires her he's like she's like screw you like i'm turning the table for what it's worth the plot for them is still propelled by men but like you said i think it is it is meaningful that they don't necessarily play by the rules fran is a little more androgynous you know so it, it yeah, it there there is some pushback against traditional stuff, and I would say that it feels on the more progressive side than some of the other films we've seen, and some films that come out today. So there's that. Yeah, and with that, I think we'll bring this episode to a close. And before we do, I want to mention what we have coming up, sort of what's loaded into the chamber, right? We have next time we're back here on iTunes, SoundCloud, well shortly to be not SoundCloud. We're in the transitional period of that. And we'll say more about that when we have that been completed. But next time we will be watching 1969's number 79 on the AFI's Top 100 list, The Wild Bunch. The Wild Bunch. And then this very next week on Patreon only for the patrons of the arts, for their ears only, those generous contributions, $5 a month. We greatly appreciate it. We can't say enough how awesome it is that we get to put that content out for the people that support us to do just that yes 
And that film will be 2016's Manchester by the Sea. Manchester by the Sea. Heard a lot about it. Here it's interesting. It's got some dilemmas, some quandaries, perhaps some moral questions to be answered. And as it turns out, if you you know hadn't heard from this episode, we tend to like some ambiguity. We like some some agonizing over moral situations. And so I'm looking forward to that. And we'll be back. But until then, I've been Matt Bazell. And I am Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. There will be spoilers. There Will Be Spoilers is hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. It's produced each week by Matt Bazell. Our artwork is by Becca Knight. You can find her on Twitter at Becca the Knight. Our great music was produced and created by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can check him out all over the internet. You can always find us on Twitter at SpoilersCast. And you can find us on Patreon if you would like to support us for only $5 a month. Also at Patreon.com slash SpoilersCast. Our email continues to be SpoilersCast at gmail.com. So send us some complaints hate mail and maybe a compliment or two remember please subscribe to us on soundcloud itunes or stitcher and we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on itunes it really helps thank you so much i expect to find you here why not i sent him back that's all i said i'd do they didn't get very far I figured. What are your plans? Drift around down here. Try to stay out of jail. Well, me and the boys here, (laughs) we got some work to do. You want to come along? Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do.